Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Meredith Bell, your host, and my podcast is brought to you by my company. We are the publisher of software tools and books to help people improve the way they communicate with each other at work. And if you enjoy my podcast, I would love for you to rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. Today, I am so excited to bring to you my guest, Denise Brousseau. Denise, welcome to my show. So happy to be here with you, Meredith. Oh, thank you, Denise. And you know, I want to tell my listeners, if you've been curious about the topic of thought leadership, you are in the right place and you're going to love our conversation today because I believe Denise is the thought leader on this subject. She's the co-founder and CEO of Thought Leadership Lab, where she works with leaders and their teams to accelerate their journey from leader to thought leader. She's also the author of the book on this topic, which is Ready to Be a Thought Leader, which I've read and it's excellent. And it's really evergreen and timeless, Denise. That's one of the takeaways I had from this book. There's no expiration date on the um, ideas that you present. You really made them um, applicable no matter where people are. A little bit more about Denise. She's the founder of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, which is now called Watermark. And she also co-founded Springboard, which is a prestigious women's startup launchpad that has led to more than $10 billion in funding for women entrepreneurs. Her clients are interested in building a platform so they can affect social, industry, community, or organizational change And her clients include people like social entrepreneurs, startup CEOs, heads of trade associations and foundations, as well as executives at Fortune 1000 companies. So we're going to go into a number of different areas all around this this theme. And Denise, I thought it'd be interesting to start with your journey around this. What got you interested in this topic and and some of your experiences have been so rich. I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to hear more about that in the context of where you are today. Thank you. I love that opportunity. You know, I I started my career uh, in the tech industry and hopped around a bit from marketing to product development, running product teams, business development and sort of advanced in my leadership roles there. And simultaneously, I got an MBA at Stanford and I met these amazing women leaders who were focused on access to capital for women entrepreneurs. And we came together as we graduated and founded this organization, which I later had the opportunity to run full-time as the founding CEO. And that journey, which was 10 years, you know, five years working still in tech, five years full-time, really gave gave me this amazing bully pulpit, this this spotlight, as it were, around a cause that I cared a lot about, which was why were women not getting any money for their businesses? And this uh, journey, really looking back, I, I think of myself more as an accidental thought leader because I had no strategy. I had no plan. My message was a little iffy, right? I knew what I wanted, but I wasn't as articulate at sort of helping people to see the steps to get there. And I was good at enrolling people in the big vision, but not necessarily helping them to to step into their role and take action. And so the fast forward a couple of years, I got a call from a friend who said, hey, Denise, you know how you became that thought leader in women's entrepreneurship? She said, I want to do that. And that sort of opened a new door to really having an opportunity to work with her with a strategy, with a plan, with a clear message to really take her from being completely invisible in her field to being a recognized expert, being able to testify in front of the U.S. Senate, recognized by the White House, headhunted by the governor 
owner. And it's like, oh, oh, this is what could happen if you actually have some plan behind what you're doing and some, some understanding of these steps from leader to thought leader. And so I really committed from then on, like, I need to share this, not just my own journey, but this journey of doing this well, doing this in a way that builds that influence, builds that impact and, and allows you to have the legacy that you really want to have. So before we go deeper into this topic, let's get a definition because I think it would be useful. I know that term has been used so often, thought leadership. How do you define it? I think of thought leaders as sort of those go-to people in their area of expertise. But over time, they're also the trusted sources that it's not just that they have expertise, it is actually that they are helping lead the way forward, that they have a, a sense of the future and they're willing to take a stand, they're willing to have a point of view. And by doing so, by shaping that uh, that perspective or that identity, they really build that community of followers in order to to build sustainable change. So I think of of thought leaders as really at their core, they're they're change agents. They're people willing to roll up their sleeves and do things, but then also helping others to come on that journey with them. That this is this is whether it's an institutional change, an organizational change, a social change, whatever it is they're trying to do, there are some tools and strategies and some tactics that you can use to, to actually further change and move change more quickly. And I think that's what thought leaders really learn how to do and, and master. So let's say we have someone that's sitting here listening and going, well, why should I care about doing that? Why, why is this important to me if I really do want to stand out and be the go-to person? Why do I need to go through this process? Well, one of the things I say is that it's career insurance. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, if you think about your own career, why would somebody want to hire you? It's often because you do have that ability to enroll people. You have that ability to build a vision and get others aligned to it. You have an ability to make change happen around whatever, a technological change, a marketing change, a new product, a new service. Those same skills apply. But now as the world continues to change and companies are really trying to align purpose and profit, it is also having that skills to showcase a company as a trusted resource in their field and somebody who is making a difference and an impact in these purpose areas, these ESG goals. And I think that skill set is also important then. So if you have, if you're going to move those goals forward, if you're going to showcase your company, if you're going to build trust in your marketplace, thought leadership skills are really how you do that. So do you define or, or I guess identify an organization as a thought leader in addition to individuals? I think absolutely. And, you know, early in my thinking about thought leadership, I wasn't really sure, but we've seen companies start to adopt and adapt behaviors in which they are showcasing not just the CEO and the CEO's perspective, but a much broader understanding that the expertise, the knowledge, and the um, the transformation that might be happening in their organization. And when we in, invite and encourage and train and uh, showcase the, all the different kinds of leaders doing different kinds of work, that builds that trust, that builds that respect and that industry leadership that really does allow our company to head up that maturity curve from being completely unknown to, you know, over time, really building a following to becoming a strategic influencer in their marketplace. You know, it, it takes a certain set of, of um, internal actions and internal behaviors, but it, and of course, some external actions and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then I would add one more in that they, as they start to understand that you can't do change alone, they start to ally with others around a cause or around a transformation, whether it's, you know, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that this isn't something one company is going to transform. We need to really understand that we're working together sort of arm in arm. And that kind of behavior also elevates a company up that maturity curve to being that strategic influencer. Mm -hmm. I really like that. And you have seven different stages, you might say, or steps 
in your book. And I was curious if you found, is there one that tends to be more of a stumbling block for people when they need to, when they're working to establish themselves in this um, position of thought leadership? You know, I think that the one Meredith that almost all of us stumble on is that belief in self that sense that we have something to say, that willingness to step into the spotlight, that willingness to think my ideas are valuable. And and we all start there. We all stumble there continuously. You know, I don't think thought leaders are born with some sort of secret decoder ring, right? This is is about building that, that muscle, that toolkit, that that set of practices. And just like going to the gym, you know, it doesn't happen the first time you lift a weight, you're not suddenly strong, right? You do need to keep at it. You need to keep um, getting stronger as a speaker, getting more con- ability to be convincing and compelling, getting an ability to write effectively, to use the tools of social media, to, to engage in a conversation with others, not just have it be one way, blah, 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 right? So I think when you, you know, I was looking back at your book and thinking about your sort of two, 10 tips for best communication strategies, I, I sort of want to add thought leadership as, as a, an 11th, as it were. It kind of builds on your one about engaging in dialogue and, and, and listening to understand that these are, these are absolutely a part of thought leadership. And then it's also trusting that we have a point of view and we have a perspective and we have something to say and that we can make that bigger difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was so relating to that chapter you're referring to, because I think when we're involved in a, in a specific area for an extended period of time, we take for granted our knowledge about that topic area, like the communication skills. And what's been interesting for me is I've been on podcasts as a guest, and some of the surprise from the hosts who ask questions and don't know as much, it's reinforced for me this thought leadership position we have around this topic. And I think it's getting exposed, you know, exposing your ideas to other people who really don't have anywhere near your area of expertise. I'm curious when you are working with individuals to help them step into their position, when you see what they have that they don't see, how do you get them to open their eyes and really um, see the value that they are bringing? So much of that conversation, and it happens with every client, is is a conversation around a, getting out of our own way, right? That this this ability to, to see ourselves with a new lens and understand that all of the internal voices of negativity are not actually serving us. But the second piece is helping people to see that while there may be a lot of voices already out in whatever arena, I mean, let's take my own topic of leadership, you know, it's 400,000 books on leadership. <laughs> so you know, I was thinking about writing my own, like, what, who am I? So that kind of who am I conversation happens for all of us. But then the the second, the way I try to combat that is to say, and aren't there people who would listen to you who would not listen to others? Like my journey from being a leader to being a thought leader makes me far more credible, makes me far more trusted, as it were, than someone who is simply an academic who may have studied how you bring people around to your perspective. And as a uh, a crusading feminist, right, there might be some people who are going to listen to me that won't listen to some person who is not like me, right? And that there are people who, of course, have already worked with me and and have already had the chance to know me are also going to listen to my voice in a way that others aren't. So this idea here is that there is a certain set of audiences for all of us. And if we trust that that is true, in some ways, we owe it to them to be sharing what you were just talking about, which is don't make them have to reinvent the wheel. Don't make them have to learn everything that you learned. Like, couldn't you give them a framework? Couldn't you give them the step-by-step? Couldn't you give them the, the way forward so that 
to me, the only way we're ever going to make transformational change is if we're not reinventing the wheel every single generation, every single mm-hmm. new person. So, you know, it's why we write books. It's why we we try to create beautiful visual frameworks and infographics is that we're trying to show others the shortcuts. And I think that is one of the other ways that I try to help people to see why your voice matters, because you have learned all these things. You are this respected expert. And, and being able to distill that learning in a way that others might adapt to it and adopt it more quickly, that's part of the work. Mm-hmm. Boy, you've touched on a couple of really important things that I want to go a little bit deeper in. And one is this idea of not trying to be a thought leader to everyone. You know, you just mentioned different audiences that you appeal to. And because of your clear stand in certain areas, you're going to turn off others and that's natural. And so speak to that. How does someone get past that? you know, desire to please everyone to, I shouldn't say please, appeal to everyone, when really that's not part of of being a thought leader, right? But you've you've hit such an important nub of this conversation that if we are about being pleasing and being likable, we may never take that leap to step into the spotlight because of course there are going to be people who disagree with us. There are going to be people who, who attack our ideas or, or differ from us. And so I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of organizations and individuals will never be thought leaders because they are not willing to, to, withstand any arrows. So I do think that thought leadership in some ways is about resilience. It is about being willing to serve those who we care deeply about, the audiences that matter to us, and be willing to disappoint frustrate, annoy, anger others who don't agree with us. But I guess this last couple of years, Meredith, more than anything, this last couple of years has made it more and more imperative for me to do the work that I do. When I see all the disinformation, I see all the blatant lies, when I see all the the ability to manipulate used in ways that are so bad for our society, that I feel like on the good side, we need to be giving people better communication skills skills, better ability to persuade, better ability to bring people along and listen and have empathy and enroll, all of which are thought leadership skills. Because honestly, if we don't, you know, this morass that's happening over here continues to grow. We need to counter it with more people willing to step into the spotlight, argue, defy the, the, the negative forces by being more compelling, offering a better vision, a, a bigger chance for, for positive change. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking as I was reading your book, people who claim to be a thought leader mm. without doing the work to actually, uh, I don't want to say achieve that level because who's to say when you've actually achieved it, but what do you think about folks that just claim it with no evidence to really back it up? Where does that cause a problem or does it cause a problem? You know, I spend less time worrying about that, honestly. I really do because I have found, interestingly enough, I found it more challenging to convince people that they are pretty far along on their journey than I am to say too many of them are out there beating their chest saying, look at me, right? Uh Yes, of course, there's those outliers. And honestly, it's those outliers who are, you know, look at me, look at me that turn everyone else off. Instead, I find, you know, even even senior executives who have a following, who are trusted resources, who do have a point of view, when you ask them, are you a thought? Oh, oh, I'm not a thought leader, right? So I think we have more work to do there to Mm. help people to understand Mm -hmm. that this idea of being part of change, being someone who is helping others to see the way forward, that there is a piece of this idea from leader and thought leader that you are on that journey. You are um, a an important influencer, and you are an important go to person, and and that's the work for me. I, I spend less time worrying about those others. I, you know, that makes so much sense because I see this myself all the time in others, minimizing their value, um, not acknowledging their strengths. You know, yeah. and I'm curious because uh, you mentioned this in your book, but I want to hear you talk about it. The role of passion. 
Mm-hmm. In one of the early, I, I guess I would almost call it a requirement, in order to emerge as a thought leader, you really have to care deeply yeah, about something. So talk about the role that passion plays in that journey of getting to that position. Well, it goes to that very word journey, because when you think about a journey of any kind to get to the end, if there is such a thing as an end to a, a journey like this, you have to have a lot of stick to You have to have the perseverance and the resilience. And the only thing that really drives that in what I've seen over and over again with people that I've worked with and organizations that I've worked with is a passion to make a difference, a passion to, to make some new perspective, a new viewpoint be adopted and gain that traction. And that's what allows them to stick to it. Because I go back to that, um, you know, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, he talks about the flywheel effect. You can't just make one small step and expect that transformation is going to happen. But but over time, by building lots of small steps, you start to see that flywheel effect and things go more quickly and gain more adoption. And I think that is driven by passion, that we are more willing to get up and, and write the next talk or go on the podcast or craft a new perspective article that is going to get people thinking in a new way, get up and and do a, you know, stand in front of a larger and larger audience in order to to get people to to see things in a new, fresh way. That takes some passion. It takes some some real commitment. Mm -hmm. And getting past those fears that tend to hold us back. One of the other chapters I really loved was um, because I'm such a big believer in relationship building and, and networking, you talked about the importance of really building this support system, yes. you know, of champions, of allies who believe in what you're doing. And that's not an overnight thing. So give my listeners some specific ways that they could think strategically and act strategically in building up this Uh, I guess, group of supporters that really get behind what it is that they're passionate about. You know, with you, I'm really a big believer in networks. And yet, even for me, as someone who cares about building my network, there was oftentimes I overlooked those champions and allies. So I'll give a quick example that I use in the book is, uh, you know, I was focused for many years on this goal of more access to capital for women entrepreneurs. And and we were approached to do the first venture capital conference for women entrepreneurs. It had never been done where all the presenters would be women. In fact, we'd seen many events where all the presenters were men, but not very many of which there was never one up until then. And so I thought the women venture capitalists here in Silicon Valley would think this is a great idea. Of course, they would get on board. And so we hosted this event, brought all the women venture capitalists together. Now, this was many years ago. There weren't very many of these women, but let's say, you know, 15, 20, 25, whatever the number was. And I was expecting for me to pitch this idea to get a huge rally and everybody excited. But instead, I got kind of a dead silence in the room first. And then I got negative thought, negative idea. This is never going to work. We've seen this before, whatever. It was just a lot of negative Nellies in the room. And until one woman stepped forward and she took the microphone out of my hand and she said to these women, look, get on board, ladies. I've been hearing from you for years that you care about this. And, you know, we can't let our fears hold us back, right? But here's what happened. That speech, and she didn't speak for more than five or 10 minutes, but that speech, because she was from their side of the table, caused way more buy-in than me over here that barely anybody really knew well. You know, I had somewhat of a track record in the Valley. People had seen my organization, but she was one of them, right? If we can get one of them to speak to them, now we are going to be able to get through in a way that you with your small voice over here on this side may not. So I think this idea of having a network, but also recognizing a network and recognizing that there might be allies and then take it one step further. Like what if I'd thought about it in advance and recognize that I could have given her some talking points. I could have put her front and center um, as part of the event, could have had her introduce me to credentialize me in a way that would have allowed them to open their minds in a different perspective. Like what if she'd set the tone of that night, we would have just moved much more quickly. So Mm -hmm. 
you can't leave it to chance. In other words, you need to be thinking, who are those people who I can a either bring to my side or who may be actually already at my side? And how can I to enroll them to use that bully pulpit in a way that is they're going to add credentials to you and their halo effect of how they've already part of that community. They're already respected. How is that halo effect kind of, kind of come over you if you yeah. can put them as part of what you're doing? Such a great story and a great illustration of how we often think we have to do this ourselves. And if we would pause and think, who do I know? Who knows me that believes in me? And like you said, you could have accelerated this. So who are the accelerators? And I I would love for you to explain the distinction between champion and ally, because you really define them differently. Yeah, I think an ally is someone who is willing to roll up their sleeves and work side by side with you. But a champion is more like this woman, her name was Helen, who is going to champion using her her broad network, her, um, this respect that she had, and she's going to do that credentializing and and offering her halo effect, even though she's not going to come back to the office and stuff envelopes or, you know, make calls. I mean, she wouldn't likely have done any of those types of things. That's what your allies are probably more likely to do. You know, they're going to be right there beside you. So I think about the people who helped co-found the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, the people who were um, advisors to the Springboard Venture Conference. I mean, these people were both. I mean, many of them were rolling up their sleeves, calling entrepreneurs, you know, reading entrepreneurial pitches, helping women present, you know, and get get the right introduction. So we saw kind of both behaviors and we needed to foster both kinds of behaviors. You need the people who will roll up their sleeves and work with you. And you also need the people who can, who can use that reputation and that bully pulpit for good on your behalf. Mm-hmm. I found it really useful to kind of think about two columns of people that fall into each because we often don't uh, dissect the members of our network into True. what roles might they play in supporting my vision and where I yeah. want to go. And, and I doing think- it visually, like putting it up on a whiteboard yeah. and starting to really, you know, I have a client who taught this to me beautifully internal to her organization. She worked at a big hospital system here. And I went to her office one day for one of our coaching meetings and she had this whiteboard and she had these sort of cryptic ways in which to write things up on the whiteboard because she didn't want people to really know exactly what she, but she was planning her strategy for getting buy-in for a big new initiative. And so she was kind of moving people around on the board as to who was in her camp, who was not, who did, who did those people respect and who would they listen to the ones who weren't yet listening to her like she was extremely strategic on how do I build the alliances I need how do I build the momentum for this idea it takes a real visual in her case but also a clear um, tactical plan in order to build that that momentum for an idea that I've always I've always respected and admired that thinking on her part Oh, absolutely. And that makes me think of a couple of more things. One is to anticipate naysayers. Oh, yes. And if they are important to your cause or not, so that you can filter them out or bring them on board, right? So there's two different things. So it seems like one approach could be where we sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with that person and maybe ask them, you know, what is preventing you from supporting this to really find out what's going on with them or having another person that you identify as part of your alliance to speak to that person? Have you found that doing this, to me, it requires work. And this is where I think the realistic view of becoming a thought leader is there is a lot of work involved in building this alliance of supporters that are going to get behind your cause and advocate on your behalf. So what what do you say about the importance of having these one-on-one conversations and then with adversaries, I shouldn't say adversaries, naysayers, let's say, Mm -hmm. is it better to do it yourself or bring in one of your other supporters to help convince them? 
Well, so what you're talking about, interestingly enough, is actually often the role of a leader, right? So this is these are things leaders need to do. I think you talk about it in your book, this being able to get buy-in, that we need to have these skills to institute change, to institute anything that we're trying to get done, a new product, a new service, a new way of approaching things. So that to me is the first step in the journey from leader to thought leader. We need to be a good leader. We need to be making change. We need to be getting things done. But then the thought leadership piece to add to it is to say, how do I broaden the impact of this change? How do I get my another division, another department, another um, part of my organization uh, to adopt the same practices? And how do I get my industry to adopt these practices? How do I get the broader community across our region adopting these perspectives? And that's the thought leadership piece, right? So both of those take a, a sense of understanding how what the role of naysayers is. Naysayers, somebody described it to me in an interesting way. She said, you know, in some ways, when somebody is a naysayer, it's almost like a critique or a, a um, complaint in the form of telling you no. But what they're giving you in some ways is a, a small gift that they're telling you what you need to overcome in order to get their buy-in. If they just mm-hmm. sit there quietly, you have no idea why they're not agreeing with you or not on board. But when they complain or when they you know, poke holes, now you've got some sense, okay, here's something I need to strengthen. Here's something I need to uh, give some further examples or a story. I think one of your recent uh, podcast guests talked a lot about using story. Mm -hmm. So when you see this idea of uh, being someone who is overcoming naysayers, there's a lot of tools, right? It's, It's the tools of allies and champions we've talked about. It's the tools of story. Sometimes it's better data. Sometimes it is, um, helping to see who might be somebody that they're going to respect. Respect, uh, that they would listen to instead of you. So there's a lot of different ways to overcome those naysayers, but most of us don't look at them as a gift. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to invite people to think if you're really going to get on this journey, A, shouting down your naysayers never works, right? Cut, undercutting or or making them making it out that they're stupid, that never works, right? Instead, mm-hmm. we have to have empathy, we have to listen, we have to strategize, and we have to build that momentum for buy-in by hearing what are their concerns and what are the challenges that they're trying to help you to see that if you don't fix, you're going to lose a good portion of people who are just like them. Yeah, the word that's popping into my mind as you're describing that is uh, holding on to curiosity so that you don't take it personally, you don't take it as an attack on you or even your idea, but instead, you know, being able to say calmly, well, that is such an interesting point. I'd like to hear more about it. Tell me more about the thinking that's behind that so that you come to a better understanding and appreciation. Because like you say, it really is a gift. When somebody's willing to speak up and object, that gives you information to build on. Yeah. And tell so, me more. It's such a powerful yeah. phrase. I mean, what we learn in improv, I always tell thought leaders who want, or are aspiring thought leaders, go take an improv class because learning to say yes and, learning to say, tell me more. These are things that really do show that you have curiosity, do show that you're open to others' point of view, and that you're also willing to incorporate some of what they're saying into your perspective, that it's not just their way and my way. It's like, maybe there's a middle ground here. Yeah. Well, I know that, you know, for decades, you have been such an advocate of women. And I was stunned when I saw the statistic in your book back in, I know I can't remember the year, was it 93, 1% of the of the um, money being given to startup companies was going to women. Did I less than one percent? Right? But here's the sad thing: last year it was two percent. Oh no! There had the highest we've ever gotten is somewhere between six and eight percent, but it is back to about two percent again. Now I I always want to say this with a caveat. There's first thing that's always funny is people say, "Well, you've had a hundred percent growth." I'm like. 
Okay, let's just not even go. <laughs> You're not talking to me that way. Uh-uh. Instead, what I do want to say is the pie has gotten bigger and the ways in which women can fund their businesses, the number of sources of capital has changed significantly, um, actually through the work of many people that I know, um, that really this idea of crowdfunded, equity crowdfunding, all of that didn't exist in 1993. And so we see that A, the pie's gotten bigger. So 2% of a larger pie is more money and it's still 2%, right? So my goal is 51%. We're not even, you know, that's not in my lifetime, sadly. No, and I would love to find out more about why that number is still so low. What, with your vast experience personally and also working with others in this arena, because I think there's the broader you know, issue around women getting a fair shake in so many things, not just this. But I think if we could go a little bit deeper with the funding and why it's not there in the same way it has been for men, what do you see as some of the key reasons? I think that the biggest reason is one that we all struggle with, which is that we tend to see in others things that remind us of ourselves. So when you think about Silicon Valley, there's sort of two pieces to this. Part one is a lot of the venture capitalists are men and they fund people who look like them, who come from the same schools, who have the same, you know, communities, backgrounds, uh, they are part of the same basketball team, whatever it is. And by the way, we as women do the same thing. Like I hire people from my college because those are people that I know I can trust as it were, right? So we, we do fall into these categories of trust that are hard to break into as women. Um, I think that's the first thing. And secondly, if you do tend to do that, if any of us, and we all do tend to, to um, trust those in our inner circle, it is also a secondary corollary to this, which is that it's hard to break into those. So even though we've been trying for decades here in the Valley to, to open those doors to women, it is definitely challenging when they are you know, primarily white men or um, primarily a certain school or primarily a certain interest that if women don't didn't go to those schools, they're not of that um, color or gender or whatever. It's just harder to break through those networks. So we have we all have to work harder to lower those um, always behaviors and to adopt new behaviors. And I will say the second piece that's fascinating right now is, you know, my co-founder at the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs and I are still very good friends. And we were having lunch a few weeks ago and she was telling me how quite funny it is how often men are saying to her, preaching to her about the importance of diversity and as if they're schooling her on this topic, like we need to be. And she's just, of course, she says she tries so hard not to say, uh, yeah, kind of been saying this for a lot of years. Where were you? You know, she just smiles and is happy that they kind of been brought around to, you know, they say to her, the best investments are made when you have a diversity of people at the table. Like, yeah, that's why we've been working so hard for women's access to capital. But it is Thank goodness people are waking up that some of these new movements are allowing people to to see that other voices belong at the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've come a long way and yet we have a long way to go. There's some recent setbacks that we won't go into today. Very painful setbacks. You just said, oh my goodness, we still have so much so much work to do. Yeah. And that's why these skills that you're teaching, these skills that I'm teaching are are really critical and why our voices matter um, and why I try to encourage more people who are, you know, younger people, people of color, people whose voices are typically overlooked to be at the table to to use that bully pulpit to to adopt some of these actions of uh, building trust and building allies and champions and let go of all that negative uh, self-talk that says you don't matter just because other people haven't believed it doesn't mean we need to believe it. Mm-hmm. Such an important point. Let's talk about a specific example. You alluded to one earlier but you may have a different one. I would love to hear you describe someone you've worked with to help them go from a place of, I won't say 
unknown totally, but certainly not recognized to evolving into a position of real authority and real thought leadership? What was that process? Well, one of the fun ones, this woman I've been working with now for, I think it's about two years, and she is uh, the head of people for a major technology company here in the Valley that you would have heard of. And the fascinating thing is when we first talked, she had been in this field of HR and talent for many years, but really no one knew her. And uh, she'd kind of come in at a number two role in this organization and been promoted to this head of talent. And now this company was really on a, a growth trajectory. And she knew that, you know, it, she had a, an opportunity to be heard in a way that she never had before. And she also knew she had something to say. But when we first began working together, a, she wasn't clear what that was and how she could differentiate herself. And, and B, she wasn't necessarily sure she had the writing skills, the speaking skills to kind of be that voice uh, around this these ideas. So part of this was the first kind of work was to A, identify some topics where she did have something to say and had some efforts that she wanted to, to move forward. But secondly, to start to build some of those skills of being uh, able to step into the spotlight. Um, um, so the, but here's what's really fun is the pandemic happened and we started to explore some of the ways in which that actually opened the door for her. For many things, of course, it slammed the door shut for many, but for someone like her, uh, it really did open the door because now the strategy, talent strategy for companies mattered and, you know, how you treat a organization that suddenly everybody is at home and the company is still trying to grow her, her thoughts and perspectives on how we create an equitable culture, maybe there was a new opportunity. So what we did, instead of starting to speak a lot at the beginning, we used a, a convening strategy, which is a very effective strategy for people in her kind of role. She uh, invited, asked her to invite others who had her same job in other technology companies that her company allied with and come together around this topic of the future of work and this topic of creating a transformative culture as a result of this pandemic. And so they started meeting and sharing best practices, sharing experiments, ideating around what were some of the ways in which this pandemic could open new opportunities and new doors, and started then creating webinars that one or the other would come forward with a perspective, and they started inviting others to come. Over time, This they created a website, they started to market more broadly, more and more people who had a similar role started to come as it became a safe place for them to have these conversations around a topic that really they were all wondering, how, what are we going to do? How is this? How do we move forward? This has since over the last now 18 months, now they've actually, this last uh, month, they actually had the CEOs of two of these companies come and speak as showcased, showcasing some of the things that they are doing from the top of the very top of the organization. So now this is this organization, this, this entity that they created, this collaboration has created its own momentum. And that is actually bringing her speaking opportunities. It is bringing her invitations to conferences. It's bringing her new ideas as well as a place to test some of her ideas. And it is also actually recently, and as of next week, she's going to be announced as a top 40 uh people to watch as the head of talent in the country. Um, so it's also brought her a spotlight around her perspective and her ideas and also invite, got a board seat um, at, a, at a very reputable organization, a very reputable company as a result. So all of this in two years um, and now is starting her own um, uh, very fresh perspectives, uh, her own blog, which we're going to be launching right after the award is announced. So we've really been doing it kind of step by step, but by taking some very strategic thought leadership strategies, starting to build her own skills and testing her ideas in smaller venues and then bringing them to broader venues, but building a reputation as someone who will take your call when a press person calls, which is also important. There's a lot of strategies we used. And now we're really seeing uh, the, the fruits of all this effort in ways that we probably couldn't have even dreamed of a year and a half ago. Yeah, that's so, there's so much encouragement in what you're talking about. And the key uh, 
thing that, or one key idea is this whole thing of taking initiative, taking a risk, being willing to put yourself out there to try something new, like bringing together these other people. And that takes an investment of time. Because if I'm not mistaken, she probably needed to have individual conversations with those other um, colleagues in these other companies to express her idea and and get yeah, but buy-in also, from them. But, but what overcame, I think, some of the fear or trepidation was they were all struggling, right? In this beginning of this pandemic, she had been speaking in her own organization and other organizations she'd worked at on how to create a more equitable culture for a lot of years. But now suddenly it was a time when a everybody was struggling and and were more because Black Lives Matter was happening and the Me Too movement was gaining momentum. There was more people paying attention to things she was she cared about. And these other women and other I don't think it was I think it was all women actually at the beginning that we also started to see that they all needed a place to test. Well, what did you do and how can we do? Like they needed a place to to collaborate um, because this transformation in the world was going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that gets to another point you make in your book about really monitoring trends, you know, what's going on in the world, what's important, where can you show initiative to really have a positive impact in this broader issue. And I think that's such a fabulous example. Yeah, we tend to overlook that. Yeah, we tend to overlook this. I, I can give the example of this past year. My sister, it turns out, is a her specialty is in the area of public health and how we keep aerosolized particles from entering our lungs. So this has been her career for 30 years as an academic, a researcher, and worked on Ebola. She worked on SARS. She worked on a lot of these aerosolized uh, um, diseases. Retired a couple of years ago, and then the pandemic happened. And her colleague, longtime colleague, called her up and said, uh, Lisa, I think you're going to have to come out of retirement. I mean, you spent 30 years as the expert in this area. We need your expertise. And so she came out of retirement. She was the busiest she ever was in 2020 and frustrated by the fact that the way the CDC, the WHO, a lot of people were talking about this disease and not understanding the de-aerosolized particles and thinking that it was all droplet spread and, you know, we can't touch something in an airplane versus somebody sitting next to you. Is it right? They just was so slow to catching these ideas and things she'd been saying for years and years. And then the Olympics. She started to tie her message to the Olympics and the importance of caring for the athlete and caring for the Japanese people around the spread of aerosolized particle, the spread of this disease. Suddenly, I'm not kidding, she became the it girl. She's getting on NPR. She's getting invited to do op-eds for the New York Times. Like suddenly, at what her voice, all the things she'd been saying now people were willing to listen. So I think sometimes this idea of finding the trend, finding the thing that everybody's already paying attention to and Mm. tying directly your message to that. It's what my client did in this tech company. It's what my sister did last year. I've seen it over and over with my clients that this isn't about just being that lone voice over here. It's just too hard to make change. You have to be aligning that with something that's already got momentum. Mm -hmm. Such an important point. And I think that's a good place for us to kind of summarize and and bring closure to this conversation. Although I could talk to you for hours, Denise, your expertise in this area is so fascinating. I know to me and to my listeners, because some folks, you know, may have left a corporate job there, starting their own companies or whatever way that they've made transitions. How do they suddenly or seemingly suddenly, you know, put themselves out there as an expert in a particular area. And if I could kind of pull together some of the points you've made is first of all, giving yourself credit for what you have learned in the previous years. What expertise have you drawn from all those experiences you have? And how can you package it as probably the wrong word, but, you know, pull it together so Mm -hmm. that for the right people, you have a compelling 
message. And I love what the point you just made about kind of riding the wave, you know, catching the momentum of whatever is already happening rather than starting from a a stopped place. It's much harder to build momentum. So um, in wrapping up, can you think of anything else that we haven't covered that you feel would be an important point for someone who aspires to be known as a thought leader? I think it ties to that last uh, summary that you gave so beautifully. And that is this idea of really trusting that codifying those lessons learned is the way to differentiate. So particularly if you're starting your own consulting practice around your area, particularly if you're trying to get a a promotion within your field or a new role, this idea of somebody who can uh, document the frameworks or the steps forward in a way that's a toolkit or a uh, infographic or a visual representation, those skills, which we often overlook, and it's certainly something I've overlooked in my career, are really the differentiators for people from leader to thought leader. That if you are the person who can sort of help others take what you've done and build on it, well, they have to know what you've done. So doc- writing the book or creating the, the toolkit or, or um, showing the steps, any of those are the key things that we tend to overlook. And we didn't get taught in college. Uh, so it's one of the things that I'm committed to getting out and teaching people, creating visual frameworks. Those are the things that allow us to, to learn from one another and accelerate change more rapidly. Well, I just want to say, Denise, one of the things I just admire so much about you is your dedication to really get good information out there. And, you know, in your introduction, I wasn't able to touch on half of what you've done, you know, probably just a fraction of it. And so I know many of my listeners are going to be intrigued to learn more about your services, about you and to connect with you. So tell us how they can do that. Well, I have three ideas. The first is uh, coming to my website, thoughtleadershiplab.com, and joining my email list where uh, you not only get a great download of fun stuff, but you also get to begin to follow some of my ideas. Another is I have an email newsletter on LinkedIn, a LinkedIn newsletter that you can subscribe to. And I tend to post content every week or two or three, uh, depending on what month it is. And then finally, I have actually two courses on thought leadership on LinkedIn learning. And so I invite people to go to LinkedIn learning and and type in my name, Denise Bersow, or type in thought leadership, and you'll come across my courses. And the nice thing is, if you're a premium member, you get them for free. If you're not, they're maybe $30. And I sum up my all the points from my book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader in the first course. And then I talk about organizational thought leadership in the second course. And so to how to how do organizations organizations go up that maturity curve. So I'm hoping people will find and follow some of those different areas. Oh, that's great. Thank you for letting us know. And of course, those who enjoy reading can pick up a copy of your book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, where you will find so many great details, ideas. You just, you know, you're very generous with the strategies and tactics that you detail in your book, Denise. Thank you so much for being a thought leader and being my guest and being such a positive force in the world, especially for women. We need you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Meredith. And I appreciate you. I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.